pastor can truly preach God's word, he must hear it first for himself. So the Spirit preaches that word to him. And I think about the prophet Jeremiah this morning, and that's really what he was talking about. Those prophets had really brought their own word. They had brought kind of wishful thinking. Um, And so let us pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray, I pray, Lord, that it would be your word that I would speak this morning. I believe that I've heard you speaking to my spirit. And Lord, I ask that you would give us the ability to hear each one of us that note, that song that you have for us. That you would speak to our spirits, Lord, that you would heal our souls. That you would call us higher and higher, further up and further in. We give you all thanks and praise in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to be preaching from what is famously known as the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the, or the Pharisee and the publican, as some um, versions of the Bible call him. The last few weeks, the Lord has really been saying some things to us. Last week, Father Don brought the message, and it was a reminder, I believe, or my sense was, it was a reminder from the Holy Spirit that where our hope is and our, what our focus is supposed to be on. We live in troubled times. We live, especially in our nation, kind of in confusing times, don't we? And I think many of us, if you're like me, you listen to the news and you just shake your head. As to the things going on in the world and the things that we seem to be placing our hopes in. And for several weeks before that, Father Mark has been speaking about how these parables, these stories that Jesus told, tell us something about the Father, about our Heavenly Father. And I believe today's word and this, fair, this parable actually speaks to us about ourselves and about our Father. And so let's launch into that. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. So we're going to look for just a minute at these two figures in the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Now the Pharisees, I think there's a lot of, we hear that term Pharisee and we probably have even a picture in our own mind, maybe of someone in robes and someone with self-importance and all of those things. But the Pharisees were actually very, very important people in their day. Um, The kids and I were doing this study on Tuesdays, it's called Drive Through History and and the guy takes us actually to the Holy Land into Jerusalem, and we learn there's a lot of history involved in it. And, and I learn something new from it every time. And it's so interesting because this last week, he actually talked about Pharisees and kind of gave their historic role. The word Pharisee actually comes from the Aramaic word perisha, which means separated one. 
they were the most separated from foreign influence. And so at this time, in Jesus' time, that would have been the Roman Empire. However, the Pharisees really got their start shortly after Alexander the Great in about the third century BC, because many, many Jewish people had accepted Hellenism, right? This, this Greek culture and all that it brought. I mean, it was wonderful. Think about it, the architecture, the theater, the poetry, the philosophy, all of those things that we think of when we think of Greek culture, Alexander the Great had brought those into Israel. And many, many of the Jews had accepted those things. The Pharisees were that one group. They were the holdout. They were the ones that had not bought it. They were reaction against the widespread influence of Hellenism. You kind of think about conservative Christianity today, right? We see ourselves as this bulwark against everything that we see going on in society. Now, the problem was they were the strict legalists. They kept every letter of the law. However, many times their hearts were not right before the Lord. And they became, over time, self-righteous. And this was the culture that Jesus came into and began to preach. Now, I believe there is a bit of a Pharisee in each one of us. Although we are called as Christians to be different in the world, we are never standing on our own righteousness, and we never have reason to brag before the Lord. If you look at this scripture, there's really not a whole lot of thanks to God other than he's really glad he's not like everyone else, right? I don't know about you, but I've been there. I've been there. You see, pride is the beginning of all prejudice. Pride is the beginning of all prejudice. I must first see myself as better than someone else before I can be prejudiced against that person. And it really is the sin that we see in the Pharisee in today's parable, isn't it? He did not see the tax collector's humanity, but only his own self. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, well, he actually didn't write it. Um, for those of you that know or don't know, C.S. Lewis actually gave Mere Christianity as a series of talks during World War II. When England was at its lowest point, I mean, they were losing in the war. They were being bombed daily and nightly. And the BBC asked C.S. Lewis if he would give a series of talks. He wasn't even really that popular or that well-known at this point in time about the Christian faith. And it, in one of those talks, C.S. Lewis had this to say, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud and a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. C.S. Lewis knew something about human nature. He had lived really kind of the range of it, and I think if he ever spoke to anything, he really understood who we were as human beings, our fallenness. 
And so Jesus didn't finish there, but the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, tax collectors at this time in history, in, Roman, in Jewish society, would have been considered the lowest of the low. In some translations, you see them called publicans. And what publicans were, they were basically mercenaries. They were basically paid by the Romans to do specific tasks. And in Jewish society, what this meant was, this was a Jew that had taken a contract with the Roman government to collect taxes for that Roman government. And the interesting thing was, to make matters worse, they didn't receive a check from Uncle Sam every month. They actually had to work out how they would get paid. And what they did was, they usually kept, they would mark up the taxes so that they could keep a portion for themselves. And could you, so you could see very easily how corruption could get worked into that, right? And so you think of St. Matthew. He was a tax collector when Jesus called him. And you know that this was one of the charges brought against Jesus over and over again by the Pharisees. You eat with sinners and, even worse than that, tax collectors, right? So think about, you know, the worst bureaucrat you've ever dealt with down at uh, the DMV or wherever. All the tax collector had to bring to the Lord was his brokenness. That's it. Nothing else. He had nothing. And he knew it. Scripture says that he couldn't even lift his eyes up to the Lord. All he had was his brokenness. And Jesus accepted it. Isn't that something else? I think one of our problems in the church is we start out as Christians, the tax collector, but we very quickly become the Pharisee. We start out Christians knowing all we have is our brokenness, but very quickly after we sit in the pews for a while, we start looking out at society and at people that come in the church sometimes. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like the unwashed masses. We forget from where we come. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 3, we're going to read just a little bit, beginning in verse 10. And I think St. Paul really gets to the point here. And so what shall we conclude there? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And so remember, the Jews would have nothing to do with a Gentile. Okay? The tax collector would have been considered as a Gentile. Because even though many of the tax collectors like Matthew were Jewish by descent, they had sold out. Right? They were on the payroll of Caesar, collecting taxes for Caesar. As it is written... 
There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. For there is no fear of God before their eyes. But in verse 22 is our hope. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Period. As Paul would later say, if I have anything to brag about, let it be the cross of Christ. I want to tell you a little story that God used in my own life, and I didn't even realize it until many, many years later. The story is told by Eric Metaxas. He's actually a writer and a commentator kind of on Christian worldview. He actually works for... Um, the Colson Center or the Colson Foundation, for those of you that remember um, Chuck Colson. But he tells this story of a friend of his who has an opportunity to go to a home of, of severely handicapped young people. And I had an experience like this when I was in the Navy. Um, we had gone to Israel. We were, in, we were docked in Haifa, Israel. And sometimes they would invite us to do kind of humanitarian work. And I'll, I'll be very honest with you, the only reason we did it oftentimes was in hope of getting a home-cooked meal. Because um, you really, really got tired of the food on the ship. And so a lot of times we would just volunteer. Um, and they ended up being some of the most valuable things that happened to me, at least in my time in the Navy. Because you got to meet real people. You got to know them. They wanted to know about your life, and you would have these conversations. And so we had volunteered. We had signed up. We didn't even know what we were volunteering for. And they picked us up in a van, and they brought us up to this house. And I don't know if it's still the case in Israel, but at that time, the severely handicapped were not institutionalized. They actually were taken care of in small homes. This home, I think, had about a dozen children. They were dropped off there by their parents first thing in the morning, they were cared for by a number of adults, and then their parents would pick them up in the evening. And when we got there, I really wasn't prepared for what I saw. I mean, these children were severely handicapped. I remember children, there were a couple that just literally stared at the wall and didn't say anything. There were others that had really no control of their limbs whatsoever. And they had us take them to a swimming pool. And I remember thinking, oh, what did I get myself into? And it was interesting. Those children that could smile, their faces got so bright, and they waited in their wheelchairs. A couple were even on gurneys. And we got up, and we carried, we went and changed into our swimming suits, and they had us pick them up and carry them in to the pool and just stand with them and let them play in the water. 
And I don't know if I've ever really encountered Jesus more fully than that day. I didn't really even know the Lord. I wasn't walking with the Lord. But God's put something in my spirit. There's an author by the name of Flannery O'Connor, and she was a devout Christian of the Catholic variety, as Eric Metaxas says. And she is most widely considered to be one of the very greatest fiction writers that America produced in the 20th century. And she died tragically at the age of 39 from something called lupus. The O'Connor story that he retells is called Revelation. And it's about an extraordinary day in the life of one Ruby Turpin, a relatively prosperous woman in rural Georgia. Ruby considers herself a good Christian, and nothing about her respectable exterior suggests otherwise. Her interior life, however, suggests the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, complete with her thanking God for her superiority to those around her. All of this changes when she's attacked for reasons she cannot understand by a girl at a doctor's office. Unsettled by what happened, she asks the girl, what you got to say to me? To which the girl replies, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. This assault on her pious self-image unsettles Ruby, and she wonders how she can be saved and be from hell at the same time. She rails at God saying, if you like trash better, go get yourself some trash then. And then she asks God, who do you think you are? God's response is the revelation of the story's title. For Ruby sees a vast horde of souls tumbling toward heaven. It includes everyone she had ever looked down on white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, blacks in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs, and bringing up the rear were the people like herself, marching behind the others with great dignity. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces even their virtues being burned away. Every day we see Jesus waiting in that little community house waiting for someone to carry him to the swimming pool. We see Jesus in a wheelchair staring at a piece of paper or the wall. We see Jesus in the homeless, the elderly. More to the point, we must realize that our virtues, our skills, our health, our talents, our piety, and anything else we think we bring to the Lord's service is being burned away. For a moment, any gap between myself and the people waiting, waiting to be carried down into that pool, I realize that God sees things so very differently than I do. And just as the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, the foundation of the Christian worldview must be the understanding that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways are not our ways. The scripture is very clear that God does not need or want our presumed virtues, talents, or even our strengths. What he wants is our willingness to depend on him alone for our very life.
in existence. You see, God's, our nature is one of pride. And humility is really the opposite of our human nature. But God's nature is love. And his love is first shown in his mercy towards us. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 we read, You see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He wasn't waiting for us to be fixed up and to be right. In fact, we never really can be right. Not until we've received his free gift and his mercy. C.S. Lewis once wrote, The characteristic of lost souls is their rejection of everything that is simply not themselves. You see, our being set apart is not really for us. The Christian life should be a life lived for others. A life of humble service as Christ's ambassadors, as his representatives. And there's no room in that for pride. St. Chrysostom once wrote, If you have sinned and have been pardoned your sin, receive your pardon and give thanks. But do not be forgetful of your sin. It is not that you should fret over the thought of it, but that you may school your soul not to grow lax or relapse again into the same snares. Let the life of your servant be openly exposed so that the loving kindness of the Lord might be all the more apparent to those around you. For although I have received the remission of sins, I do not reject the memory of those sins. There's been a lot of talk of revival. And I believe if you look at history, I remember Archbishop Adler preached a lot, and this was years and years ago about revival and one of the things that he feared was he said that you know, a lot of the revivals, there were these wonderful, powerful moves of God, but for whatever reason, they seemed to get hijacked. And they died out, or even worse yet, they led to corruption and all kinds of bad things. And in the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon wrote a sermon about revival. And he reminds us that revival is always God's work. And more importantly, he reminds us that revival begins with each and every one of us. It's not so much about this huge move of God in the entire body or what's going on in the world, but it begins in each one of us. And in the words of the prophet Habakkuk, it begins by a simple cry, Lord, revive thy work. Revive what you've begun in me. Help me not to be the Pharisee of that parable. Help me to always remember that I was first the publican and the tax collector that could come to you with nothing more than my brokenness. And revive thy work in me. Revive what it is you began. Revive what it is you called me to so that I might by faith walk in that. 
I want to close with this prayer. And it's a prayer that I found a number of years ago. I actually found this little book, if anybody remembers, a guy by the name of Richard Foster. I believe he, he's gone to be with the Lord now. He wrote a very famous book called The Celebration of Discipline, which was a great book, or it is a great book. And I found this little prayer book. It's actually a compilation of prayers that th- over his journey of many, many years as a pastor, as a writer, as a theologian that he compiled. And I found it of all places in a thrift store. I think it was 50 cents. It might even still have the price in it. It's one of the best books I've ever bought. I had to pray this prayer on Monday because of things that I was involved in myself on Sunday, and I very quickly picked up that mantle of Pharisee. How could they be like that? And this is the prayer. I am, O God, a jumbled mass of motives. One moment I am adoring you and the next I am shaking my fist at you. I vacillate between mounting hope and deepening despair. I am full of faith and full of doubt. I want the best for others and am jealous when they get it. Even so, God, I will not run from your presence, nor will I pretend to be what I am not. Thank you for accepting me with all of my contradictions. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.